welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. I'm your host, Subhu Kalpati. I am a talent leadership and organizational development professional. In this episode, we'll explore how women are equal yet different and how culture can either impede or enable progress for women at work. My guest today is Anita Bhogle, an alumnus of IIT Bombay and IIM Ahmedabad. Anita spent her early years in advertising market research and marketing consultancy. Over time she went on to become an entrepreneur. She's also an author most recently of Equal Yet Different. She's also an amateur keyboard player and a homemaker. Anita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much Subodh. Lovely to be on the Culture Matters show. Um Anita, place that I would love to start um is uh, your journey um and I know we were just talking about it uh, before we got into this. Um could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? So you you spent your early years in advertising, marketing, market research um and I remember I passing I passed out of college many many years ago and I read your book with Harsha Bhogle The Winning Way and it left a mark on me, right? So I remember um you know uh, growing up reading the book uh well over a decade ago and of course you've done a bunch of things you founded prosearch consultants um there's also the first uh, digital learning library that you founded biz pundits which was um you know sold to emeritus so uh, if i were to ask you to look back and maybe point out some key highlights um of your career so far uh what would those be so firstly i think it's been a very unusual and a very interesting kind of a journey uh you know these days it's fashionable to say that you need to reinvent yourself every decade but uh, that actually happened to me and and you know partly because of constraints i would say because um, you know in our time um they didn't have opportunities to work uh, part time or work from home or mm-hmm. things like that and uh so i did have family to support me in the city and as you know you know after my kids were born uh, harsha started traveling hell of a lot and when you go uh, you know for 2 3 months at a stretch uh, you can't typically do the things that other couples do so uh, we couldn't sync our calendars as they say uh, his calendar was synced to the cricket calendar and so i was just left with holding the babies right uh and so there there were many things i couldn't do i couldn't work late i couldn't travel and do things like that but yet uh, and 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 those drove quite a few uh, decisions so i'm really typically a a quant person you know i was trained to be a statistician but in those days um you know doing data related work because there were no pcs meant that you had to work for a big company and companies didn't have the culture of offering opportunities that were like part time flexi time or work from home um and so i eventually did a 180 degree turn and so uh, went into soft skills training hmm. so um so from that point of view you know i've never really batted uh to my strengths and uh i never thought that anybody would be interested in my journey but you know things have a way of working out and so along with the constraints i had a certain restlessness which uh, was about you know okay i have these constraints um but is there something i can do and that's a philosophy that i have talked about in both the books where we talk about you know uh, don't do uh, don't let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do uh, and i think it's a philosophy that works 
and should work for most people. So instead of looking at um, you know constraints and excuses, uh, you should look at uh, you know what is possible, and that way you remain positive and you end up doing something. Uh, because uh, honestly speaking, it was very easy to sit back and say you know there are too many constraints, so I'll just uh, you know stay at home and be a stay at home mom. So uh, so those were things that drove. Um, drove my decisions and uh, when I was in advertising we reached a stage you know when um, I couldn't travel like I said I was head of a department but I couldn't travel mm. and so then we Harsha and I decided to put our heads together and our skills together and that's how the winning way um, came about then again you know when we were doing the winning way because they are live sessions I said I can't scale with this and that's how the video library uh, you know came through uh, technology also had come about, video technology, and so I could do that. So used my strength, used my place uh, well. Uh, I had access, I had a good network, and so I did those things. So in the process of doing all this, I think, you know, managed to create um, new genres. So uh, the speaking, the motivational speaking thing was new. And, you know, today it's about like 25 years, yeah. and it's still on, the book still sells. Uh, the video learning library was also, um, you know, uh, something that was the first in India. And so I managed to sell it uh, to take it to a wider audience. Uh, and now I've done the book on DEI, which again is was not really my area uh, of expertise, but something I felt very strongly about. So um, that's my view. And I think if I look at my journey, you know, my observations are that, you know, nothing is really rocket science. Mm. If you kind of find uh, a niche for yourself and you uh, you work hard and you're true to yourself, then I think uh, you should be able to do a good job. So I think Absolutely. that's what I figured. And interestingly, I've, you know, kind of worked part-time or flexi-time or work from home at a time when, you know, this term was also not there. Yeah. There's a lot that one can pack into a day. And which is why, you know, people who are self-employed find it very difficult to go back uh, to a corporate job um, because the the pace itself is quite different. Mm. Um, so, so that was something, uh, you know, my that's, that's one of my observations. And since I'm kind of doing something in the area for women and diversity. Yeah. I just feel that, you know, this is a question that most women ask themselves, can we have it all? Hmm. It's something that men don't ask themselves. Maybe right. they have it all, maybe it doesn't bother them, but it bothers a lot of women. Yeah. And um, I think the answer to something like that is that you can't have it all at one time. Hmm. But over a career span of, uh, say, 35 to 40 years, you should be able to, uh, you know, manage everything. So I started something new at 50. Uh, I learned to play the keyboard at 47. Wow. So I would say, uh, yeah, it's how you look at life. It all turns out okay, finally, in the end. <laughs> something that you said uh, kind of stuck to me, which is don't let what you can't do define what you can do, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, right? Don't let that hold you back. Um, I thought that's, uh, and one insight that popped up in my mind is that, you know, I think a lot of us get to that point of being intrinsically motivated with something, but then actually acting on it, I think there is a bridge to 
uh, you know kind of cross um, mm-hmm. so right so how uh, again a follow up question to you is how how did you do that across all these different kinds of things that you've done through your career one is of course being inspired yourself and saying hey i'm going to do this but then actually doing this is a lot of hard work it, it's not as as rosy as you thought it might be when you probably yeah. thought about the idea right so how do you keep going and how did you uh, you know uh, do that i think hard work is there in my nature plus when you have so many constraints you have to grab uh, whatever little you can so i think that is one thing but i must also point out that most of my work has been skill based right uh, and so it didn't really require an investment hmm. so you know typically it's like well, because most it bothers most people about that that you know what if i lose money so right. i didn't have uh, to worry so much about that and the attitude really has been you know karke dekhte hain Mm. let us see if right. it doesn't it doesn't if it doesn't work it doesn't work right what's the harm right you you yeah. learn something in the process yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's wonderful that's a great attitude to have thanks anita um so with that i'm i'm going to shift focus a little bit uh, to your latest book which is um, titled very interestingly equally different uh and you um, you write about the back story in the book of course about how you yes. arrived arrived at the name of the book uh, could you maybe throw a, light, a little bit of a light on that what message are you trying to give through the title and you know how did you arrive at the fascinating back story of of the title yeah. Yeah. so so the title uh, you know if you read the book the title came before the book yeah um so it really came out of my previous work which is the winning way and uh, you know there we talked about learnings from sport for managers so we used a lot of quotes from um, champions and you know talked about how do uh, champions and champion teams really uh, you know what do they do to excel so in one of those uh, slides was a quote by steve bo mm. where he had said that you know uh, captains or leaders must treat their players equally yet differently so obviously he was talking about it in a leadership context may he talked about you know uh, there are certain non negotiables like honesty integrity discipline hard work mm-hmm. so so whether you are a newbie or you are a star you know the same rules apply but um within a team you know you have different characters and that's the way it should be uh but people have different motivations there are different things that make different people tick uh and since leadership is really about understanding your people uh that's a very good quality among leaders that you know you need to understand people you need to see what really uh, you know makes them tick and therefore you need to treat them differently right and in 2004 we were doing this presentation for um, a group of senior executives from the tata group and uh, a, a lady named sangeeta talwar who was like uh, you know very senior um, executive um, in india she came up to me and then she said you know i love the presentation but this slide stood out for me and i think it works uh, for women isn't that what all women look for you know flexibility um on the input but uh, you want to be weighed in the same scale as men in the output thing and that kind of stayed with me and i said oh i hadn't looked at it that way mm. and then when i wrote the book eventually you know during the pandemic it came back to me and i thought it was a perfect and very interesting title uh because i think um women are equal to men at least the professional women that i've talked about you know yeah. qualified uh women 
they've been through the grind they've taken all competitive exams it's the equal on ability and ambition ambition at least to start off with but they are different in terms of uh, their social conditioning the way they are wired yeah and in terms of the challenges that they face uh so basically that's what um you know equally different is about um the problem comes when you know um people who are different or a group that is different is perceived to be as a group that's less equal and i think that happens to all minorities in any kind of society because yep. you know when you say at least in the diversity context that it's a man's world Yeah or that the default leadership model is male it basically means that you know all the uh, suggestions the imagery the assessment expectations they are all you know are created for the rules are created for the majority uh so that's where the problem comes and therefore the message in equally at different is we may be different but we are not any less equal so uh that's uh, really what equally at different is about Yeah. Uh, and it it addresses the issue uh, that we have few women leaders we need many more uh, because i think now um uh, the starting line looks pretty robust you have enough women who are passing out of professional um, colleges yeah but we still have a very uh, dismal looking percentage of leaders at the top yeah so um it uh, the the tagline says career catalyst for the professional women and uh, so what can be done to see that you know women are uh, better represented more visible and have a better voice so so let me just give you examples of mindsets what i mean by mindsets you know typically organizations believe that women are not as ambitious not as focused uh on their careers there's also the question of the wage gap which is there in, yeah in varying degrees but definitely there so women don't get access to the same kind of opportunities that men do mm. and they don't have the same kind of wages sometimes they get paid less for the same kind of work right uh interestingly women to see themselves as secondary breadwinners mm and it's uh i was fascinated to see that even when women earned more than their husbands they still thought of themselves as secondary breadwinners in fact somebody said to me you know that my husband's income is like bread and butter and mine mm. is like jam mm. so uh uh it it sounds funny but it also gives you the feeling that you know it's easier to throw away your career or get sucked into all kinds of things because there's not much priority for your uh career mm. so and similarly i think you know women also believe that men are not so good at domestic duties right it's true that you know men don't um do enough at home mm. but as the pandemic showed that doesn't mean that you know they are not good enough or they are not i think it's a question of guarding the turf somewhere for women yes so 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 those kinds of mindsets really come to me sure and that also talks to the social conditioning part that you mentioned earlier which is that you know but that's just how it is so therefore people don't really uh, think twice about it and uh, probably comes out in conversation and everyone's surprised right so yeah um, yeah so uh, it's it's quite interesting 
Uh, I also like the fact that, um, you know, again, you you mentioned it in your book is that initially your slides used to have uh, role models of typically male uh, sports person, sports people. Um, mm. Right. And then eventually you made a conscious shift to also include people like, um, uh, you know, women sports personalities also. Um, right. From from tennis. from And they started so doing well as well. Yeah. So exactly. you had a Maricom and you had a Sanya and then you had Saina, and, you know, yeah. all of them. The cricket team started doing well as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So one is the changing external context, I suppose, helps uh, because you see yes. role models that you aspire to become. And that's so important um, for, uh, for women to also aspire to get into roles that they feel uh, and, and not really just the male stereotypes, so to speak, that they need to emulate. Right. So a lot of the lean in conversations tend to be about emulating the male stereotype, which is which I think is very wrong because, uh, you know, to each one's own. And therefore, how do we really bring that authenticity out in the leadership, um, I think, is is probably the bigger question to ask. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks, Anita. I think that's uh, that's quite interesting. One um, one other point. Again, there are lots of insights in your book that have uh, that I have taken away. But one point that stuck with me, and I think you touched upon it already a little bit, um, which is when does gender become a liability, right, for progress, especially for women? Um, and in the opening chapter, I think you mentioned it is that um, you it has to do more than with just work and careers, and especially in the Indian context. Um, yes. Right. Could you elaborate on that a little bit um, in terms of how you thought about it and written about it? So now, you know, DEI is part of every corporate agenda. Mm. So so obviously, uh, you know, stuff at work is always being discussed. You know, what are your diversity targets and, you know, where are you on that and all that. Having said that, you know, uh, it's not really uh, the opportunities that at work um, that are the bigger challenge. Every woman I spoke to uh, said that the challenge at home Mm. was bigger than the challenge at work. Mm. Because at work, at least, you know, it's out in the open. There is a certain commitment that companies have, uh, you know, to the world, you know, and there is discussion that's happening. What happens at home uh, stays private. And so um, there's not enough sharing of load that is happening at home mm. at all. You know, I've also used a term mentally feminist. Yeah. Yes, in the book, which I think is a very strong word. And that uh, yeah, a lady named Durva Bahubana kind of, you know, talked exactly. about. And I kind of picked it up. Um, so we have learned to say all the right things. And, and mentally feminist, you have men and women. So typically the men uh, say things like, you know, I'm very proud of my wife's work. I support her. Mm. You know, uh, and all those kind of things. But women are feel burnt out by this double duty that they're doing. Mm. And they are not in a position to uh, even invest in skills or networking or, you know, all the kind of things that are required in today's work environment. Yeah. But men don't think about what they can do to kind of, you know, allow their wives to do this. Mm. they're also not giving enough priority i think to women's careers so you have so many examples of men accepting assignments or taking transfers mm. without really uh, uh, you know taking into consideration what it would mean for their wives careers and it's not very easy when you are a trailing spouse either the visa is not right doesn't allow you to work or it's uh, difficult to kind of you know start off in a place that you've never worked in before 
you know, to to kind of establish a network, look for opportunities. It's not always easy. And so I feel that, you know, um, the challenge at home is much bigger because priority is not being given uh, to uh, the woman's uh, work. And also mentally feminist is, you know, we all think that we are very liberal. We are very progressive. Even companies think that, you know, they are doing a, 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 an act of kindness to women by giving them work that is easier or less challenging, a softer option. But it does really work in favor of women. But we are so uh, deeply conditioned. And I have a story in the book, uh, you know, about uh, friends of mine who are uh, batchmates. You know, and and being batchmates is probably the uh, best way to have an equal relationship. Yeah. So they were in the U.S. and they had kids who were young, and the wife used to uh, cook. And the husband used to clean. And it was all going well till the parents arrived. Her parents, his parents. And then they became very uncomfortable. Because the parents were uncomfortable. The woman herself became very uncomfortable. So when you scratch beneath the surface, you realize that, you know, we're not that progressive after all. Yeah. And it's a mindset that needs to be unlearned. And it's going to take time and it's going to take more openness from everybody. Not only the people concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps generations for it to come to where we aspire it to be, I suppose. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And you also touch upon generations in the book. But coming back to your point about uh, mentally feminist, I mean, I, that was just, uh, I know you attributed to Durva Bhaguna in the book. Uh, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I think, um, you know, we, we all aspire to be woke, uh, quote unquote, right? Say the right things. But doing the right thing is uh, is is something i mean i also had to take a step back and reflect am i doing enough for my wife uh, mm. or you know women colleagues so I, it's it's nice to call a, someone an ally but then um, you know saying that you're an ally doesn't mean that you really are right so what are you really yeah. doing to to become that ally and really be the uh, guide uh, who's supporting the other person uh, so, so i really I think, see yeah. that as the biggest reward and the biggest compliment from my book for my book mm. because i've had so many men tell me that, you know, I have a young daughter and I really wish for a better world for her. Uh, so that's the whole idea. Because, you know, even in the book, I've tried not to make it a, a kind of a, a us versus them. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's not that kind of a book. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's not about male bashing. It's mm. not about activism. It's about sensitization to people mm. because a lot of it, we are all victims of the same kind of patriarchal conditioning. Yep. And so, uh, so, so that's the idea to change people and to open their minds one by one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going, uh, going a little um, deeper in the, into the topic of allies, um, Anita, um, what do you think is, um, uh, you know, again, organizations utilize the support of allies to make sure that, um, you know, especially in the context of women, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, women progress in, in whatever they, way they would uh, want to. So what do you think is the role of allies within an organizational setup and how should organizations look at, uh, you know, the role of allies? Because I think a lot of organizations do a lot of work in empowering women uh, uh, employees. And I think we have come to a stage where, you know, at least it's being spoken about and something is being done. But I think mm. this other aspect of sensitizing the other part of the organization, which is socially conditioned Absolutely. to work and think in a certain way, I think is a bigger uh, aspect that, you know, uh, very few touch upon. Um, so where, yeah. So what do you think we can do to kind of fix that? 
So the first thing I want to say is that you know women require allies. Mm. Uh, and there are two reasons really. One is that you know they are in a minority, and they come with certain limiting behaviors that I've talked about in the book. Yeah. Uh, so because they are in a minority, uh, they're not. They don't always feel as if they've been heard, as if they are valued. Mm. You know. Uh, so I think having an ally, uh, having people, having a support system is a huge enabler for women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, things like that, people who can encourage you, people who can nudge you, uh, are more important to women than even money. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point that, you know, um, I think it's a great, uh, thing to have people who can support you and uh, when i say support it really means that people who can you know uh, not only encourage you and nudge you uh, but also you know show you opportunities yeah uh push your ideas because that's becoming increasingly important in uh, large organizations yeah. um so show you opportunities help you navigate the organization uh so, so allies are extremely important. And I think women also must try and seek uh, help like that. Um, I talked about limiting behaviors. Yeah. So um, typically women have, you know, kind of low self-belief. You know, they're plagued with issues like questions like, am I good enough? Will I be able to handle this? And this kind of dissonance is really compounded by, you know, external voices because they're constantly being asked things like why do you even need to work mm. are you sure you can manage this you know uh, or even even questions like how will you manage with family and these are questions that only or you know work work life balance issues that only women are asked not men yeah in fact you know i remember uh, i did a twitter spaces when the uh, book was uh, published and there was this woman who, uh, you know, asked me a question in the end. And she said, you know, I want to do an MBA finance. But uh, my family feels that, you know, uh, it'll be easier if I didn't do that and did something that was softer. Mm. Because it would um, allow me to look after the family uh, better and allow them to uh, or make it easier for them to find an alliance. Mm. Because if the girl is very educated and has a challenging job, then it becomes difficult to find a spouse. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, these kind of questions are only asked of women. Yeah. So, so somebody who can kind of, you know, uh, help you with your self-belief, somebody who can nudge you in that direction, I think is very important. Also, typically women don't know how to stake a claim or showcase their work. So uh, if somebody can help you do that, a mentor, um, you know, or sponsor, as they are now called in yeah. large organizations, yeah. people like that can actually, uh, you know, push your case um, and uh, just hold your hand when you have this uh, self-doubt. Uh, so that's the kind of thing. And a big need I find is that, you know, when there's pressure and women find it difficult to uh, have this work-life balance, it's, it's a lifelong struggle, but, you know, you always have those points in time when there's, you know, you've got to work late or there's extra pressure or you have a boss who's pushing you too much or something like that. Mm. 
those are really the uh, the points where you know women kind of throw in the towel Mm. And you need somebody to tell you, just hang in. This will pass. It's a very temporary phase because otherwise, you know, you end up throwing away your whole career. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult to come back. Whatever people might say about, you know, second innings and this and that and all that. Of course, the opportunities are there, but it's not as easy as, you know, uh, everybody makes it out to be. So, so, so those are the kind of things that, you know, typically allies... Uh, help with and encouraging boss and a good place to work is is a huge enabler for women something that people don't always realize um i want to um shift focus a little bit uh because you know we and your book of course came out post pandemic so we went through this entire upheaval um social mental physical spiritual all kinds of upheavals (laughs) through through this uh pandemic in the last three years i suppose um, and I think one um, uh, one kind of semi-permanent uh, aspect of that, which you also mentioned in the book, which has come out is that, you know, there is a lot more flexibility now in general, um, yes. right? And uh, you get to, uh, you, you, many organizations offer hybrid um, policies and work from home policies. Um, and th- that I think is a positive step in uh, for everyone and especially so for women employees and you know, just yesterday or day before, there was some news saying that, you know, some organizations are facing attrition because they are forcing employees to come back home and the attrition is the highest in the women category, right? So um, they they don't like that and therefore they are leaving the organization. Um, So what's, um, uh, you know, do you think these opportunities really help and positively affect our uh, women women colleagues? And what could be some potential, uh, you know, upsides, downsides uh, in your mind? Yeah, so the the pandemic was an interesting time. Mm. And uh, what was even more interesting was that I think men and women had slightly different experiences. Basically, because I think when women are at home, um, everybody wants a piece of them. Mm. So whether it's the help or the children or parents or whoever, you know, uh, somehow women's um, work is taken less seriously compared to men and people think it's okay to disturb them Mm. Uh, so uh, especially in cities like Mumbai where you know um, houses are small it was a a bit of a challenge and uh, I remember companies saying things like you know they are asking for a sabbatical uh, because they can't handle it Uh, and I also found a lot of women saying we'd like to go back to work Mm. Uh, at that point in time because you know everybody was struggling with uh, what it was yeah Yeah. so uh, I think there are opportunities uh, because I think the flexibility is there saving the commute so there definitely are opportunities and it's a good way of bringing in um, women who are not currently working yeah. So, so at least they will have the opportunity to get back into the workforce. But again, it's not as easy as everybody makes it out to be. Mm. Uh, the flexibility is there and all that. But the big problem with two issues I see in working from home, one, at, at least for women, uh, one is recreating this whole office atmosphere. Like I said, you know, recreating it at home. How can you be productive when yeah. you're working from home? So do you have your exclusive space? Do you have all the, um, you know, things like internet connection and, you know, silence and um, interaction with others? How do you, how do you recreate that when you're working from home? And the second thing is compartmentalizing work and uh, work and, uh, you know, home in your mind, because typically I think women have the switch in their brain. Uh, So, 
it's two modes. And when you travel, obviously, that it's easier to switch on and off that mode. Yeah. When you are at home, it could be either all work or all play, mm. or at least perceived to be all play. Because people don't always trust you. Yeah. So how do you do the smart thing and find that balance uh, and don't end up working all the time? Nor do you, uh, you know, at the same time, if you can be productive. So uh, that's what I feel about working from home. I know people get into a comfort zone uh, and I know people are having problems getting to work. But I think a hybrid model is the way ahead. It would be the best where it will give you uh, the best of both worlds. Great. Uh, striking the right balance, uh, so to speak. And yeah, the interesting point that you make is that a lot of things got normalized post-pandemic and mm. you know, the the jhalak gave people really an opportunity to kind of recalibrate. It was difficult for many people, especially women, like you said, right? They, they used to get pulled into a lot of things, especially if you're living in some kind of a nuclear family where you have a lot, many people to, um, um, you know, take look care after. of, so to speak, look after and take care of. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. And maybe again, this is just an assumption. Maybe uh, you know, women figured a way around that because they were at home all the time, and then yeah. suddenly, uh, you know, organizations started calling people back into office. So therefore, there's this other shift. Uh, but I, I guess, like you said, it'll probably fa- fall somewhere in the balance of hybrid, which which brings together the best of both worlds, um, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. You know, one of the things that women fear, or two of the things that women fear about this, one is when they are at home, even if it is maternity leave. Mm. That, you know, they will take on more work, more domestic responsibility. And that is a irreversible process. Mm. And I suspect something like that happened during the pandemic, that when they were at home, they ended up and nobody wants them to go back. Right. Uh, the second thing, the second fear is that when you work from home, you probably not have all the perks of a full-time employee. Yeah. And so things like maternity leave may not come your way. So like I said, people are still grappling with the issue. Everybody's thinking it through. We don't know which way it will go, but I think a hybrid model is probably the way ahead. Uh, there is this entire chapter that you, um, uh, you know, you've put together in the book called the Diversity Agenda, uh, yes. which I which I really liked. And um, you know, you talk a lot about what organizations can do to kind of level the playing field, and you give plenty of um, examples and uh, you know ideas there. Um, could you throw some light on you know what is it then that organizations can do to one? Uh, look at it from a diversity lens, of course, uh, you know, enable practices, policies, and so on. But also this entire piece of inclusion, right? Once once yeah. you get people in, how do you make sure that they stay in the organization, right? So uh, could you talk a little bit about these two aspects if I were to ask you to throw some light? Sure. Yeah. So the way I see it, DEI is a science and an art. And uh, both are important. So science really is the compliance bit. Mm. You know, having your diversity targets and then looking at all your policies, um, you know, how do you create equal opportunities for people? All those kind of things will come under policy. What is it that you can do? And that is extremely important uh, because that really will drive the way the organization is going. Uh, You know, even policies like working late are not always uh, gender neutral. So HUL was telling me that, you know, they don't um, encourage people to go out for a drink as an extended, you know, team meeting because it's not inclusive, Mm. right? So so those are the kind of things. Plus, you know, um, when you're doing, say, training, 
or you're doing team bonding exercises, uh, the majority normally decides what they want to do. Again, mm. those kind of things, one has to be sensitive that, you know, can we do uh, something that the majority likes, uh, but sometimes also do things that the, uh, you know, minority likes. Yeah. Uh, then about equal opportunity, you know, there's so much unconscious bias that's happening that, uh, like I said, there are assumptions that women who have young children um, will not want to take up challenging assignments. Right. And what happens with that is uh, that women are not typically uh, included included in the decision making. It's better to co-create uh, such decisions because I think today's women are not only ambitious, but they are also quite capable of finding a support system. Mm. Uh, parents today, for example, are definitely more supportive and ambitious of their daughters mm. and are willing to help. They realize that, you know, uh, she's going to need support and they're willing to kind of, you know, take the load. And so uh, organizations shouldn't make assumptions like that. Mm. Mm. Uh, so those are the kind of policies that, you know, one needs to look at. Apart from that, I think organizations need to send the right signals, send out the right signals. So whether it's designing your website or whether it is job descriptions, the wording of the job descriptions yeah. must be inclusive um, because a lot of times, um, you know, it sends the signal that, you know, women are not really uh, welcome. Yeah. Just yesterday I saw a, a ninja rock star or something along those lines for, for yeah. the role, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah, you or you know you all these templates in presentations, for example, has only men. Yeah. So how do you send out the right signals? Apart from the fact that you know uh, you're giving paternity leave, but you're not encouraging uh, men to do it. When especially you know a lot of men have FOMO and they're not taking up paternity leave apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Now how do you send out the right signal and this? so so policy is one aspect, but. Culture is the other important thing because, you know, just having uh, targets and things like that without creating that culture of inclusion is not going to work. Because mm -hmm. then, you know, you're just getting the numbers at the start, but you're unable to retain, retain people, as you said. Right. Or the people uh, who stay don't feel happy to come to work. They right. don't feel like, you know, they're being heard. They don't feel that like they're being valued. So how do you uh, kind of, you know, create that kind of uh, culture? So that's that's really combination. Like I said, it's a science and an art. And uh, it's not a HR or a CSR initiative like a lot of organizations treat it. It is something that, you know, the whole organizations must believe in. Mm. Research has pointed to the fact that, you know, consistently pointed to the fact that diverse companies, and here I'm talking gender, mm. but diversity in general is important. And it leads to better outcomes. It leads to better workplaces. It leads to better financial results. Um, and so it's not just something that, you know, you need to feel good about or something that you do when the times are good and then forget about it and put it on the back burner when, you know, you're yeah. going through tough times. It's not something like that. So that needs to be treated. And so it needs to remain in the collective consciousness of mm. the organization. And which is why I have talked about an idea where in, at every forum, you know, you should ask the question, why don't we have enough women here? Yeah. So whether it's at the hiring stage or the promotion stage or at conferences or who's doing the presentations, 
you know, all those kinds of who's getting visibility in the media. All these things are important. And, and, and women feel very strongly about things like that. And in fact, you know, say things like we should be having a, a gender equality uh, kind of a index for most yeah. organizations. Yeah. And, you know, uh, which, which will signal to us uh, which are the best places to work in. I think that makes a lot of sense. Also reminds me of a quote um, that I had heard recently, which is that diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being um, invited to dance. Uh, But belonging and authenticity is all about how you want to dance is up to you, right? So you bring yourself to work and do it the way that you want to. Correct. Yeah, yeah, and that's where... Because, you know, being allowed to be yourself is also important for women because like I said, you know, all the default models are male. And so the pressure to conform... You know, it's always this issue of whether you should fit in or stand out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so that's important. If you're allowed to be and you're allowed to thrive the way you are, then I think that's the true measure of culture. You talk about the story in in your book about how you started off in IMA many, many, many years ago, uh, and uh, what yes. happened then, right? And uh, that brought. Well, it was it was a little uh, shocking and uh, um, you know insightful at the same time in the way that um, you you kind of brought out that story and what what you did after that, right? Could you share a little bit about what happened when you when you joined the class yes, of so, way back? So the interesting thing about the uh, you know when I joined uh, I am Amdabad, we were two Kulkarnis and we were both in the same section. Now, uh, those who've been to IMA or have heard about how it is, it's a U-shaped classroom and, you know, people are seated according to their names in alphabetical order. So logically, J.D. Kulkarni should have been next to me, but he wasn't because his name was written as Kulkarni J.D. And my name was written as Anita R.K. with a miss in brackets. Mm. Okay, so we were just 5%, nine girls out of 180 and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, why do you need to say this? Right. So then we went to the office and we, then we argued and we don't want it like that. We want the same kind of, uh, you know, the way the names are written has to be uniform. And uh, they removed the miss. They couldn't change the uh, roll numbers at that stage. Mm. But uh, I believe it, these kind of things still exist. So in the places that you ex- least expect, you know, the, you you always have these kind of experiences. Let me share a personal experience with you. You know, so many years later, mm-hmm. you know, like I mentioned before, I learned to play the keyboard oh. uh, rather late in life. But anyway, we have a teacher, and then we have we are a lot of executives who learn from the teacher. And uh, some business uh, people found it uh, interesting, and so um, they decided to cover the. Uh, thing about you know a corporate group playing music um so all the men i was the only woman in the group okay so all the men were referred to by like you know their iit im backgrounds and their designations and whatever and i in spite of having an iit im background uh, which in any case doesn't have anything to do with the music but whatever mm. was referred to as harsha bugle's wife mm. now i don't see what the connection is and he doesn't uh, i mean the only thing he does is carries my keyboard sometimes yeah. to the to, to the performance. But other than that, he has nothing to do with my music. But you know, this kind of um, uh, kind of discrimination, uh, though this one was harmless, but sometimes it can get hurtful, and sometimes yeah. it can kind of you know come in the way of your career. Mm-hmm. 
absolutely and that i think also talks to the um, the point about unconscious bias that you make um, yeah. because all of these are subtle biases that we all carry and it comes out in these ways um, absolutely and, and um, if, if i so were to do, ask- so do women you know women are also uh, biased so it's only the expectations are very very gender based yeah you know when the son comes home they will ask hey do you want a cup of tea and are you tired and things like that but the daughter in law the daughter is expected to immediately uh, get on to housework and you know nobody asks her things like that yeah so so gender based expectations are there all the load is expected from the woman any uh, any best practices or interesting examples um, anita that you've uh, seen or heard of uh, in driving um, uh, in working through I, i wouldn't say driving but working through uh, uh, you know reducing or eliminating some of these unconscious biases that we carry especially in an organizational context um, right anything that uh, that is top of your mind that you might want to share yeah so first thing is to get you know rid of the bias and so you know instead of um, putting your gender and age and all that on the cv if there are blind cvs mm. that that in a way takes care of uh, you know the bias yeah uh, then again you know when you go to recruit if you can select or have some colleges where you know that you know there are enough women mm. rather than going to colleges where you know that there aren't uh, that itself gives you a better um, uh probability of uh, getting good women candidates mm. um and and like i said you know asking this question all the time because sometimes what happens is you know um everything is unconscious bias yeah. so it's just uh there's no diligence in the process mm. uh, you're just going by what is top of mind and sometimes you know male names are top of mind yeah. uh so it's like saying you know i want a carpenter and you think man right yeah. you want to drive her you think male yeah nurses female right immediately yeah. yeah so sometimes things like that you know you want a maid or you want a cook mm. and and then you think female yeah uh, so these are biases that are always there in your mind mm. and um, so to get over these you need to ask a question like that or you ne- need to give a mandate so for example you know um rupa kudwa was telling me she works for omidyar she yeah. used to be head crisel and she was telling me that you know when board positions are to be filled mm. people normally it's a boys club and people think oh this one's there that one's there this one might be interesting that one might be interesting and most of the names that are top of mind are male but if you go through a head hunter and you tell them that i need at least 25% women in this list yeah then you know that you know since that is the mandate that's been given you are going to get candidates mm. so sometimes it helps with that another interesting story uh, that i put in the book actually is about um, you know finding candidates again right and this is a story uh, told to me by rishi gore who used to head yeah. theo who heads theo broma now he right. used to be at sudexo right and uh, he said he just tweaked the process a little bit uh, to ensure that there were more women because you know there are so many complaints that people i mean the common complaint is that you don't have a pool that's big enough mm. and yes it's true probably uh, at most times but if you kind of you know think out of the box then maybe you could find a solution uh, that that is good enough for you 
So yeah. what Rishi did was, he said, you know, typically when you fill positions, you kind of look at uh, aptitude, attitude, uh, you know, functional skills, and you also look at relevant experience. Mm. And so by relevant experience, you mean, you know, somebody who's worked in your industry. Mm. Now, that could be an issue because you might not have any women who have worked in your sector. Right. But you can always look at neighboring sectors or related sectors. And mm. so he said, you know, it's only this, the relevant experience bit that he kind of diluted. And he found, you know, that he got enough women candidates. So the starting point is to say that I will not close any position without seeing that, without interviewing at least some women candidates, and then to kind of find innovative ways doing it. Yeah, I remember reading Rishi Gore's story also in your book. And what I took away was the intentionality aspect of it, right? So it's not just yeah. about a policy on paper, but you're figuring things out to make sure that it actually happens. And what you shared is just a great example of um, of just that. Yeah, but you need leaders with conviction. You yeah. need leaders with courage because there is always pushback, mm. uh, you know. So, uh, so, so driving it from the top is important. I'm through with my questions, uh, Anita. Any any closing thoughts or something that we may have missed that you might want to add to the conversation? It's all about unconscious bias, mm. at least about the book. It's about um, sensitization, like I said. Yeah. And um, I think we all deserve a world that is better and. For that, I think, uh, you know, men must look at, you know, what what is it that they can do better? What is it that they can do uh, differently to become real allies, real enablers, real partners? And women also, in turn, I would say, you know, shouldn't uh, feel entitled. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, the focus has been on, oh, we are different. And so we need to be treated differently. Right. Uh, the whole idea in equally are different is yes, we are different, but we are also equal. Yep. And uh, again, you know, because there's been so much focus through the movement, through the women's movement on being treated equally. And that's important because uh, women haven't been treated equally. Mm. But um, I think women must also think about how to behave equal mm. and how to believe that they are equal. Because if you want uh, the whole movement to sustain, then uh, unless you talk about, you know, being equal mm. and behaving equal and believing that you're equal, it's not going to happen. Right. And uh, so basically, those are my thoughts uh, about the book. Excellent. Thank you, Anita. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. The term mentally feminist really shook me up when I read it in Anita's book for the first time. It really is just another way of virtue signaling or trying to be woke. Unless our actions match our words and we come through as trustworthy allies, no amount of rhetoric will help move the needle on inclusion and belonging at work. Until next time, I encourage you to think deeply about how we can better drive the diversity agenda at our workplaces, how we can be better allies to our women colleagues and drive a culture of belonging and inclusion that works for all.